Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome once more to the McClifford Podcast. Now, we've seen some changes over the last few decades. I mean, like the pace of change in so many different ways has really accelerated. And off that, this is down to digital communications or that thing we used to a long time ago call the internet. Anyway, one area that has really changed as a result is journalism. And, quite separate to that, another area that has changed for other reasons in recent decades is sport. All of which brings me to my guest today. Mark Woods recently retired as a sports journalist after over 40 years in the employment of the Irish Examiner and Evening Echo. On the occasion of his retirement, he gave a speech that all of those present attest was a real insight into how so much had changed. I wasn't there, unfortunately, but I was so taken by the accounts I heard, I decided I have to get that man on the podcast. And so here he is. Mark Woods, you're very welcome. Thanks indeed, mate. Thanks for the invite. Mark, first of all, congratulations on your retirement. How goes it in these early days? Uh, I'm about a month into it now, Mick, and it's so far so good. It's uh, most pleasant, I must admit. (laughs) Being your own boss, effectively, at this stage of the game. Very agreeable all (laughs) round. Okay, Mark, as I said, just somebody mentioned to me that you definitely would be someone to speak to on this topic about journalism. But just from your own point of view, take us back to the beginning. What brought you into journalism? How did you get in and what did you find there? Well, I was always interested in sport and I fancied from an early early on being a sports reporter. So um, there's, there's a strong family connection with the examiner. So... Back, way back, would you believe, in 1977, I got a job as a copy holder in the old proofreading department, and that involved days and nights. Uh, I lasted about two or three years there before I got a job then in the old Irish Weekly Examiner, putting that together. And I was there for about a year before I moved across to the main editorial as a junior reporter. And in those days, it was mostly news. I was interested in sport, obviously, enough, so occasionally I would get marked on, on sport. There were a couple of issues with sport back then. Uh, one was that there was always a shortage of space. And any time I wrote for, for sport earlier on, the mantra was, keep it tight, keep it tight, there's no space. So that was a good discipline to, to learn early on. And uh, despite the promptings of, we say, Tim O'Brien and Tom O'Hearn, they were always looking for more pages, but invariably they fell on deaf ears. And basically, sport knew its place in the overall scheme of things. And in the pecking order, it was fairly well done. And tell me, Mark, when you say you went in as a copy boy, was that the phrase? A copy a holder. A copy holder. What was that exactly? Yes. <laughs> Something from the Dickensian <laughs> times. Basically, everything that appeared in the, in the Examiner and the Echo, and I'm talking from the page one lead to the debts, small ads, big ads, everything that appeared in those papers um, had to be proofread by a senior proofreader 
who had the printer's version, and then us youngsters, we were called copy holders, we had the original copy, editorial, advertising, whatever. And basically our job was to stay awake, listen to the reader reading out the printer's version and then informing him of any discrepancies. So you were physically reading it while the senior reader was actually reading it out loud? He was reading it out loud and I was following the original to make sure that the two met. And occasionally you'd have mistakes like there would be copy out or there would be um, other, other, other mistakes from the printer's version. And then he would correct the, um, the proof and I would bring it back out into the printing floor and give it to the printer to tidy up. And that was the full time job? Started on a Monday at nine o'clock, finished at half past five. We did a month of days and then we turn over, do a month of nights and nights started at six o'clock on a Sunday, which, as you can imagine, during the summer wasn't all that pleasant. Look, I would say even when I talk about changes and I'm I'm not that young myself, but I came in, uh, I suppose, about 15 years after. But it's fascinating to hear that even that recent that was the method by which uh, things went in. Of course, that's one way of looking at it. But equally, Mark, I would hazard a guess there was far less mistakes in print journalism in those days than there is today even. Absolutely, because it was it started it started with the with the editorial section we'll say. They checked reporters' copy and text came in and they edited down, then it went to the printer. The printer typed it, it came into our department to be read. And even on the stone, as we say, do you remember the stone where yeah. pages were made up, cut and paste and all that? They were checked there again. So mistakes were not accepted. That was the bottom line. And if anything untoward had happened, it could be traced all the way back. So you had to be on your toes. And you were doing that for a few years? I did that for about two or three years. And would you have found it a good learning experience? Absolutely fantastic, because from an editorial point of view, you were dealing with the original copy and you could see the original copy. You could see the sub-editor's version after he got his hands in it. And you, even though you probably were, I wasn't realising at the time, I was actually learning. Yeah. Was it a very male-orientated environment and does this? <laughs> in my speech, I referenced uh, Jack Nicholson starring in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a great film from the time, set in a mental hospital in a prison. Yeah. And <laughs> I said that the um, the idea originally for that film came from the reading room. <laughs> it was absolutely bonkers. But all forms of life, as you say, all male you worked in pairs, you had all sorts of weird and wonderful characters, and let's put it this way, it was never dull. Would it be inaccurate to suggest that on occasion there may have been drink taken in that environment? Um, I have to be very careful with that now, Mick. It's a long time ago, Mark. It's a long, long time it's ago. A long, it's a lot, yeah, a lot of fellas have long <laughs> memories. Um, put, it th- put it this way, the drinking culture wasn't just confined to the editorial or advertising departments, especially when you're on nights. I mean, nights started at six and you finished maybe around one in the morning and you had a break for half an hour or an hour. So as you can imagine, there were times when we were led, led astray by the older guys to 
the nearby public house. But the point should be made that notwithstanding that, and it would have become apparent if it was otherwise, that did not lead to a shoddy worker or, or more... Well, sorry, I'm asking you. Did it, in any instance, lead to shoddy no. worker more mistakes? Certainly not, because you were probably even more attentive after a couple of right. drinks. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the main, the main thing was to concentrate. And uh, definitely when... When technology came along and that department was closed down, you could say it wasn't for the betterment. Why did you say that now? Because mistakes, mistakes were unacceptable back then. You just didn't make a mistake. And that could be a small thing from a typo to whatever. With new technology, and I'll give you an example. When I finished there recently, um, when I was working for the Echo and doing stuff online, which had to be put up on the website straight away, it went up online without another pair of eyes looking at it. Yeah. Which, as you know, is is lethal or can be know. lethal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so it is, you went from one extreme where there was loads of uh, of avenues testing and checking the copy up to now where you had none. Yes. One other thing about those days, Mark, you mentioned, uh, no, this is mainly people and by right. The more people, the better. And I would encourage anyone in terms of readers of the Irish Examiner, the best daily as far as I'm concerned. But you you mentioned a weekly examiner. What was that? <laughs> the Irish Weekly Examiner. It was made up in Cork, printed in Cork and sold to the Irish people, stroke Cork people in London and occasionally in Birmingham. Right. Now, I joined at the very end of it. But I'm told when it started off, it was hugely popular because it was a totally different world then. I mean, you're talking, you're talking the 60s and 70s, you know, where communication yeah, yeah. was was primitive. So we worked on that, came out on a Thursday, was shipped across on the, on the Friday. And but you could see even then it was it was on its last legs. You know, the world, the world had moved on. Communication had moved on. And I think it lasted about another year before it folded. So that's and that's, that's the, something that was there and for, and it obviously geared towards Cork people abroad in London. So, I mean, commercially up to that point, it must have been worth doing it. Oh, it was, it was. It was um, and um, you can imagine back in the 60s, maybe early 70s, where even phoning home was, you know, was awkward enough. So the Cork people living in North London, I presume, just Camden and all those areas, uh, they look forward to getting the, the Weekly Examiner, which had, it was kind of a, a microscopic view of the previous week because it picked stories from the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, and put them all together into this compilation. And as I say, it was hugely popular, but then it ran out of time, basically. Yeah, it reminds me of that, that old story about, uh, that Michal Merhertig told about, uh, he, was, he was over in New York with... Um, or one of the All Stars uh, trips, and and he went into uh, a shop on Forty Second Street, and it was a uh, uh, an Asian man was uh, serving behind the counter, and he asked him for the Kerry man, and the response was, "Is it the North Kerry or the South Kerry edition you're looking for?" <laughs> True story by all accounts, you know. But, then that's yeah. a, but that's an indication. It's, oh, yeah, and I've, I've look, I, I spent time myself in London and in New York in the eighties. And the weekly paper was a big thing. I, I wasn't aware that there actually was was one of the exam. That's interesting in itself. Um, one other thing there. The other thing that I find very interesting from those days is, like yourself, did you go in there straight from school and you just started working? I did. And, that, I did. and, and, I did. and you effectively did. learned your trade there on the job. 
Exactly. That was it. It was literally for the first, I don't know how many years, because the proofreading department, that was learning. The weekly examiner was learning. And then when he started as a junior reporter, there was about half a dozen of us joined in the space of maybe a year, year and a half. And most of us had a few things in common. We were young, raw and clueless. And we had to learn. Now, we were lucky. We were surrounded by absolute legends of hard-nosed senior reporters who were only too willing to lend a hand. Anytime we needed advice, there was no trouble. You could approach them and they'd set you straight. Yeah, and it's also, it would strike me as it's also great from the point of view of um, today, there is such an emphasis on academia, irrespective of what you're doing, and that there's a case to be made that in a lot of instances, the old way of going in and learning from the bottom without necessarily having to have to have any third level qualification is far more beneficial. But that's I suppose that's another indication of the way the way things have changed, you know. Yeah, I'd say on that point, Mick, probably more relevant is the the lack or the absence of an office environment now. Because young people starting out, who can who can they turn to? If they need advice, what, okay, you can talk to fellas, but there's nothing like being able to move across to a fellow on the desk or someone on the desk and say, can you help me with this? I'm stuck. And would you say that particularly since COVID or even prior to that? I'd say since COVID. Right, yeah, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Since, definitely since COVID. I mean, the, um, I mean the, amount of inf- the amount of stuff that I picked up and all the other junior guys. I mean, I, I, I'll throw out a few names, you know, Val Dorgan, yeah. Donald Musgrave, Dermot Russell. Absolute legendary figures who were more than willing to help us youngsters because they were they were in the same position years yeah, early. Yeah, 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 absolutely. As you said, things have very much changed there and we always talk about progress, but in certain ways, and not being nostalgic in any way, but in certain ways, I think there's no doubt that we've made advances, but whether it's progress or not is is a different matter. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mark, you got your shot to some extent at sport then. I did a bit of that when I was starting out in the 90s. And the scene then, I was in Dublin actually, the scene then was you got an in, you were given a number, you called into the sports desk in in the local papers. And if you were lucky, you got two or three of them. And then you'd be sent off to cover either a a rugby match, a soccer match or or a Gaelic football match. It was here. And you... um, you did up your three paragraphs and you sent it into the three of them and you might get a fiver from each of them. That was the kind of <laughs> way, well, back in your day, how, how exactly did it begin to, so to speak? Well, most of my early work was news, but we say on an average, maybe one day a week I'd do sport and that could be a preview of something or maybe going to a match or whatever. But as I said earlier on, the big problem was lack of space. But that changed around the mid-80s when the likes of Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach in cycling, Barry McGuigan in boxing, Sonia Sullivan in athletics. They started to emerge 
and they created a greater awareness of what sport was about. But the big thing was the Ireland soccer team in 1988 qualifying for the European Championship Finals in the old West Germany. That struck a chord, but it was only two years later when they qualified for the World Cup in Italy. To my mind, 1990 was the game changer in terms of sports coverage in newspapers. Because the days of one or two people being sent to cover whatever were now being overtaken by teams of reporters, teams of photographers. I mean, sport was splashed across page one. The inside pages had it. Sport eventually got the extra pages to cater for the the need. Because you remember, back in 1990, the country went crazy with the World Cup. So editors and newspaper proprietors had to meet. There was an insatiable appetite for news coming from the World Cup. And I've actually, like a lot of things, I'd forgotten that and maybe didn't take for advantage because when I was very young, I, I, I had always been into sport. I was into sport before I was into journalism and something. But I, I so obviously we understand the phenomenon of the, the Irish football team. But apart from that, in the overall context before those days, sport had nowhere near the prominence within a newspaper or a media organisation as it does today. Oh, worlds, worlds apart. Worlds apart. As I say, it was probably a tradition and a cultural thing that sport knew its place. And may, if you look back as well, Mick, there wasn't as much sport then as there is now. I mean, take women's sport, for example. You have ladies' football. You always had camogie. Uh, ladies' soccer. Ladies' rugby. They're, they're huge now, where they never existed when I was starting out. So they're just one example of how sport has just, it has grown unbelievably over the years. And as you said, the, the big leap, we had, the, as you say, Kelly and, and Roach in the tour that brought it international and, and Sonia Sullivan. And then, of course, the big leap was that, that uh, Jack Charlton's managed football team. Um, I'd say the expense accounts started to get a lot larger in those days. Well, I think that was one of the reasons why sport was kind of you know, kept to one side because, as you know, it takes money. You know, you're going to have to put your hand in your pocket to send reporters, photographers outside the country for long periods of periods of times. But when you look at it, when you look back at it, Mick, they probably had no choice in the matter because the demand was so great that they had to cater for that demand. And as well, Mick, 1990 was the privileged year because I know. Cock football is very close to your heart. <laughs> and 1990 was the year of the famous double. Cork went in the All-Ireland and hurling against Galway and the footballers beating, beating Meath. So we went from a World Cup of mass hysteria straight away into following the Cork hurlers and Cork footballers all the way to the double. And that got the treatment as well. There wasn't just one or two covering matches. Teams were sent up. Teams were sent to... Uh, press conferences, teams were sent to media days, media nights. So 1990, when I look back to now, was definitely the pivotal year in terms of how sport changed in newspapers. And being in the centre of it, did you know, like, did you find it exciting? Was it exhausting? Did you notice this change just in terms of your workload and the opportunities you had at work? I found it exhilarating because I had started off only a few years earlier as a junior reporter and suddenly... I was being thrust into this, you know, travelling with the Ireland soccer team, following the Cork colours, following the Cork footballers. 
And literally every day, every week, there was some level of excitement to look forward to. And it was it was hugely educational from my point of view because um, access to professional sport is very limited. Whereas with the amateur days of uh, the um, GA football and hurling, you could go into a dressing room after an All-Ireland final and talk to people, which is unheard of nowadays. It is. I remember doing that myself. It was only about 23 or 4 years ago, 2000, the year, the year Kerry won in uh, 2000. I remember being in the dressing room after it as well as a reporter. Oh, well, masquerading as a reporter, I'd say. <laughs> but uh, th- th- that's the other thing from those days as well, Mark. There was huge access for journalists, uh, particularly, I'm thinking now, particularly in, in terms of the Irish soccer team. There was in the build-up to match days. Match days were totally different. There was no access to dressing rooms. There were former press conferences where the manager and players, maybe a captain, were were brought out to be interviewed. But in the build-up, you could literally talk to anyone if you wanted, provided they were willing to talk. And it was very easy. And that was, Ireland differed greatly. I remember after the Ireland-England-Italy World Cup game that ended 1-1, the English players had boycotted the English press over there, carry-on. So there we were waiting in the car park and suddenly the likes of Peter Shilton and Gary Lineker walking past you and you stopped and asked them for a couple of minutes and they had no problem. All the, all, all the while, the English guys around, the English journalists around their bus looking out at us talking to the English players. They had a boycott because it's some of the bad... Ah, uh... oh, sure, don't, don't you know, no, the, the red tops would go ballistic from time to time with nonsensical stories so the English players had enough of it but they had no problem talking to us. Fantastic, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and then, I don't did you cover much rugby, Mark? The, the, the whole professional era in terms of rugby. I did, I did. Um, during the mid-1990s, Mick, I went to, I changed, I changed tack, I went, I became sports editor of The Echo. I'm a great believer that every kind of, every now and again you have to kind of reinvent yourself. So I did that for about three years. And when I came back, the Munster rugby scene was just starting. So I got involved in that. And um, as you know, that was that was an extraordinary journey too. It was. And it was, it was a big change, wasn't it? For going from what, like my recollection prior to the mid-90s is that the, the inter-provincial scene was there, but it wasn't. Uh, the main focus, it was far more a focus on the club scene and then you had the All-Ireland League which for a few years was very big altogether in terms of, of, of the uh, the club scene at that time. I, again, was that something that there was a lot of coverage increased around that time? Oh yeah, the All-Ireland League was huge. We never, ever before Munster and Leinster became, became massive in their own rights, all the attention was on the All-Ireland League. I mean, I, I can recall great days up in Limerick where you would have Packed, packed grounds in Thoman Park and Dura Doyle, um, Clifford Park and for Young Munster. And they were great matches. But the advent of professional rugby changed all that. The fans started following Munster instead of, instead of the local clubs. And that's been the way ever since. And what about access to players? Did that change a lot uh, with the professional era? It did. I remember at the outset, Munster had a famous win over Saracens at Vicarage Road in, in Watford. And being able to go into the dressing room after the game and talk to Stringer or Gara or Galway or whoever. But that only lasted about a year or two and then there was a massive clampdown and then the whole thing nearly came to 
came to a halt. You were you were you had to deal with whatever players Munster put out for interview during the week and after the game as well. And sometimes you might have only a reserve who didn't play at all being brought out, which made a bit of a farce of it. So it went from one extreme to the other, really. And of course, that would have taken from the the exhilaration, as you put it, are 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 the opportunities to um to talk to a lot of these players and. Why, Mark, do you think it was deemed necessary to go down that route in terms of um, professional rugby? I would say a lot of it had to do with the numbers um, of the media following teams. You certainly had websites, you had more radio stations, you had more TV stations, and it became unmanageable. You couldn't have everyone traipsing into a dressing room after the game. So that was one of the reasons. Probably the more pertinent reason, though, was was for the the provinces to uh, get control of it all. They were deciding who was going to be interviewed. They were almost deciding what they were going to be what was going to be said in interviews. So it became a control matter really. And that's one thing that I've always been curious about in terms of sports coverage and teams. Uh, and I, I've noticed it far more in Gaelic games, but I'd say it applies to rugby and, and, and soccer as well. And that issue of control. You know this thing about they're saying, you know, somebody, um, I'm on a team and I go out and Mark Woods interviews me there at the side of the pitch at training and I say, you're this crowd we're meeting, uh, they're going to be no good anyway. And then <laughs> this notion that that becomes a rallying cry for the opposition and you're giving them ammunition. Mark, I was That's always sceptical right. as to, I mean, you should be optimally motivated anyway. Some old fella on the opposition says something about you. Are you going to get more angry? Or Do you know what I mean? Was, has that always been exaggerated? It has, it has, it has. It's um, it's, it's the same story. Uh, talk, talk a lot, but say nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, I mean a, a lot of it is, a lot of it is just mind games too. Because as you know, five minutes before the, the players leave the dressing room to go to a big game, they, they've lost all knowledge or interest in what happened during the week about who said what about who and why what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. It's just air. Jack Charlton had a great had a great phrase where he called it silly buggers. Yeah. Bloody silly buggers. And he was right. He was. I also <laughs> I also heard a story one time apparently true about um the motivational powers of Mikko DeWire as an individual. And Mikko now is, he doesn't have the best of health now. We wish him very well. He's still down there in Waterville and he's still going strong. But I, I was told by somebody who was present, the motivational powers, and I won't mention the player's name, but he worked one player into such a state going out explaining how his opponent had told him what he was going to do to him, that this man <laughs> lifted a door off its hinges on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it doesn't matter what what kind of has been said in a newspaper interview you put up on the wall. If if you have a, a manager who can motivate, as it was for the time. Now these days we're processing, we're this and that and what have you. The same thing wouldn't apply. But this notion that uh, pinning up on the wall uh, a newspaper interview with an opponent who, who disrespected in some way that that could uh, somehow uh, motivate you to a higher level. I I I I've, I've always wondered about that, like. I was very, I was very skeptical about it too. I mean, if a fella needs that to get motivated for a match, then you're beaten straight away, yeah, aren't completely. you? Completely. No, of course, the huge change 
Mark, was digitalization. Um, did that come dropping slowly or, or, or from your point of view in terms of coverage and particularly affecting sports because you're out there in the field and you obviously have to file very quickly and the whole thing. How did you find that changeover? It was gradual, but at the same time, it was kind of, it became sudden, even though that's almost a contradiction. I mean, you remember the time when we had just um, typewriters and paper and you you've, you've dictate a copy of the phone. The next, the next invention was the fax machine. Now, people are probably listening to this and saying, what is he talking about? But the fax machine, as far as I'm concerned, was the greatest invention of all time because you could type your copy, put the copy, in, insert your copy into this fax machine, dial a number, and like magic, it appeared back in Academy Street. And would, would you have a fax machine at the match? I covered the Tour de France one year, Mick, and there was a mobile fax facility. That went from stage to stage. So when you were finished your copy, you went up to the, into this, um, we say lorry for the want of a better word, and you picked your fax machine and five minutes later you were you were done and dusted. And at the time I thought it was the greatest invention of all time. And then somebody said, we should go paperless. And in my naivety, I said, that'll never catch on. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold. <laughs> and that was, of course, when the net came into being. That was the end. That was the end of it, Mick. That was the because end. Because in the good time, the good times <laughs> were gone. <laughs> initially, like, and again, people, younger people, want I remember this, but initially, I, I recollect it very well. Uh, the idea of of the our internet, as we used to call it, you <laughs> had a station, perhaps one in an office, which had access to the net, and that was the only access to it. You didn't bring it out in the field. There was no such thing as a phone or a, a mobile net as such at the time. Oh no, I can recall our first, our first mobile computer was, came from a company called Tandy and it was the most basic, it was a keyboard and a screen and all it did was create text. You created your report and you sent it, but it came in a briefcase and in the briefcase were, was a set of couplers that you attached the mouthpiece and the earpiece of the phone dialed your number and then said a few novenas and hoped it reached Cork at the other end. And did it always reach it? Not really. <laughs> You'd always have to make a check call to the Syscom's department and they'll tell you, oh, only half it got through, you better send right, it again. Right, right. And you start, and you start all over again. So, I mean, that's, that's primitive now. It is, but it, was, it, was, was, interesting, uh, it was interesting how... Um, how that change came about, particularly for people who were working out in the field like yourself, you know? Oh, yeah, tis, uh, but it's changed completely, completely now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Up to the time I retired, if I was putting stuff up online, I'd have to source the photograph, attach the photograph, put up the headline, put up the said the sub-headline, and publish it on, online. And you're talking about something that used to take either four or five people doing it. Exactly. Exactly. And then at the same time, you're expected to go run down and get quotes from the from the manager or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it is, uh, so everything, as you know, Mick, everything is no. Everything is wanted no. They want, they want everything yeah. no. Because that's, that's the way the world has, has been, that's what the world, the way the world has become. And the other thing, I was talking about access in terms of professional sport. What has struck me as having really changed in terms of amateur sport, and particularly thinking of Gaelic games, I mean, Access to players at that level 
is completely transformed now as far as I can see. The only time you see interviews with players is when they're promoting something, a product there or, or a competition or something. The days when you basically rang up a player, said we sit down for a chat, they're completely gone as well. Oh, long gone, long gone. Tis, um, and um, what I've noticed as well, it started with these um, press nights. You know, press nights for a provincial final, press nights for an All-Ireland semi-final or final. And the manager decided who was going to be made available. I mean, you had one situation up west where the third choice goalkeeper was brought out. You know, I mean, how about taking the mick out of things? Uh, And that kind of, that almost set the standard really for the future. Now... I mean, I have to laugh at, at the great Kilkenny Hurling team. When they were at the, in their pomp, you couldn't get next or near them. Now, since they retired, you can't shut them up because they're everywhere. Yeah, and that, and is it because, like, the mentality of the players then, and, and look, to be fair, the, your, your average Gaelic Games players, football or hurling these days, the amount of dedication that's required, the, the whole dedication in terms of training, physicality, the whole thing is it's huge. But notwithstanding that, is it that they don't see any advantage in doing interviews or is it that they're told we don't want anybody doing interviews? Is, is it complete control now? It's a bit of both. A bit of both. I'd say a lot, a lot depends on the county manager. If the county manager believes that there's no benefit in his players talking to the media, then it doesn't happen. But you see, you go back to early the early days when, when play, inter-county players were looking for a job their profile in the paper always yeah. helped. And that's why, that's why they made themselves available. Nowadays, totally different. Because they're so well-educated for the starters anyway. You know, they don't, in, their, in their minds, they don't need the media yeah, I, yeah. To, uh, to, bo- to boost their profiles. Yeah, I suppose. On one level, that's fair enough. It makes it harder for those working in the media, but that, uh, you can see how it's fair enough. Tell me, Mark, so your attitude to 19-year-old Mark Woods starting out today in 2023, would you be envious of him or would you say, no, 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 much easier my day? That's a good question now. Um, as a 19-year-old, you're always enthusiastic and yeah. energy. You're full of, you're, you're full of, you're full of, of asking questions about why and what and where and when and all this kind of carry on. So, and you can't beat enthusiasm. I think once you lose your enthusiasm, you're, you're beaten really. I've so, had more opportunity. That, that, that's the problem you see. And rates of pay are another issue. Yeah. I mean, for you're not going to become a millionaire if you want to go down the journalistic route. <laughs> but, then the, but then there is job satisfaction. So you have to weigh it up. You have to weigh it up. But in terms of opportunity and in terms of your ability to express yourself as a journalist, uh, and I suppose you take into account technology and everything and that kind of thing and and the number of outlets and that, I just wonder whether would it be a lot more difficult today to break into the business? It probably is because because it goes back to money again, doesn't it? I mean, everyone knows that the, the, the newspaper industry is... Is just barely limping along, really, isn't yeah. it? It's um, and instead of instead of taking on people, they're they're probably cutting costs more more than anything else. But there is there is definitely uh, an avenue through the websites. You know, um, there are so many websites out there now that that um, there there are 
avenues for people to explore the journalistic route if they're so minded. they're willing to work for nothing for a certain... Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's the, it's that's like, the problem. Um, that's it's the like problem. musicians and what have you now in terms of trying to make a few bob all the money goes to the technology companies rather than those, those who create the um, the music or whatever at the same time. This is it, yeah. And, and even if you do get money, try, trying to get paid regularly and properly, it's probably another oh, matter absolutely. again. Um, you know? And I suppose, just to finish, Mark, your highlight, am I, would I be right in guessing 1990? In many respects. As I say, I thought it was a pivotal year in the way newspapers treated sport. Um it was an extraordinary year sport-wise with Cork winning the double, the World Cup initially, and it was just, I mean, you, you if I'd find it very hard to beat 1990 as, as a year. Okay, there were other months winning the Heineken Cup and stuff like that, but 1990 uh, definitely is one of the most memorable years that I can recall. And the business in general, in terms of its capacity to convey the, the beauty of sport and to reach as wide an audience as possible. Um, and in the written word in particular, because that's your ballywick, uh, do you think it's well served today, better than in your day? I don't think it's as good as it was in my day starting out because of the because of the pressure of deadlines yeah. and deadlines regarding websites where, where copies now literally needed at the final whistle. And you can't you can't have top quality writing or reporting if if people are under pressure to get copy in ASAP. So it's you can't have the best of both worlds. No, you know to say you know is that people people need time after a, after a game or after an event to analyze and and to think it out. I mean, at the moment, what all you're doing is literally almost blow by blow of of what's happening. That's true, and I suppose for yourself at this stage, between retirement and dipping in when you want to, maybe you do have the best of both worlds at last. <laughs> well, I think I've reached, I've reached, I've reached the promised <laughs> land. I suppose you could say, <laughs> Mark. But um, I will be at, I will be at matches eventually. Yeah, eventually, eventually. When you get, there. I love that word. Actually, it's a fantastic word. Eventually, <laughs> listen, Mark Woods. Mark, it was a joy talking to you today. And thanks very much for that uh, journey back across the last 40 years in, in journalism and in covering it through sport and every success, health in your retirement. Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Mick. Many thanks indeed. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Hang in there. We'll be back with you again next week. Good luck. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.